We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy your song. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You're gonna tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 2021's Old, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Um, joining me, as always, is the chooser of this film, Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? And, of course, we have Simon Howell. Hello. And joining us as a special guest, we've got, well, I from another one of Goombastop's flagship podcasts, uh, we've got Randy Dankovich. Howdy, y'all. All right, so we've all seen M. Night Shyamalan's Old. I think we have a wide variety of opinions on this movie, so this could be really We've all experienced it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but first, uh, Rick is the one that picked this movie, so we always ask, why, Rick? Why did you do this to me? So way back when we started a podcast, 2007, 2008, like year one, Simon and I decided to do a two-part M. Night special in which we reviewed not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, six M. Night movies. The first half of that two-part special was fairly positive. We reviewed Sixth Sense, Science, and Unbreakable. We pretty much agreed we liked all three films. Then we got to the second half of the two-part special, and that consisted of Simon and I arguing for about an hour, (laughs) and I don't think we agreed on anything. So what I love about M. Night is regardless if you like or dislike his movies, it seems like there's always something to talk about. And even people who hate his movies love to talk about his movies. And so why not go back to the cinema? For me, it was the first time in about a year, watch a movie that I know we're all going to want to dissect and talk about, make fun of praise who knows i think it's gonna be a fun time i'm a huge fan of m night just to let you guys know i'm also a huge fan of the happening the only two films he's made that i don't really care about is after earth and the last airbender but apart from that i'm a big fan uh all right okay well now that we've uh (laughs) heard your reasons i think we're all we probably all have something that we can agree with just in that explanation but uh before we get into the discussion let's uh Hear a, a quick clip from old. Are we there yet? This beach, it's beautiful. My swimsuit is hurting. They do look small. Come on, let's play hide and seek. Have you seen my children? Mom, I'm right here. He was six years old this morning. Oh no. Mom, I'm scared. There's something wrong with this beach. We were chosen for a reason. 
All right, that was a clip from Old, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, all right, guys, let's dive right into this. First of all, let's uh, show, raise a show of hands here. Who liked this movie? Who did not like this movie? I liked this movie. I quite liked this movie. Okay. Rick. I would like this movie if it was a silent film and nobody talked. So you didn't like this movie? I don't know. I like, I mean, we're going to talk about it. Like, I know, Patrick, you didn't like the film. I hated, hated, hated this movie, and yes. and I want to I want to preface this with like I'm not a Shyamalan hater. I actually find his movies like maddening because there's so much talent in there, and like usually half the time you see the talent, and then you see all of his flaws, which are horrendous at times. This one is to me, I feel like I'll just give you my my brief take on this movie i think every single instinct he had in this movie was wrong every single one i think every single shot that he attempted was wrong it it meant nothing to the movie i think he miscast every single actor he also wrote horrible dialogue every single word was horrible uh everything every decision he made was bad i've never seen him do that before (laughs) so that's that's where I'm coming from. So I know that I'm in I'm at the very very extreme. Um, but yeah, I was uh, I was repulsed by every moment of this movie, and several times I considered walking out. And it was only for the podcast that I stayed in. And in fact, about six or seven people in my screen did walk out. Uh, lucky them. We all agreed way back that if we were going to restart the podcast, this was like in 20, 2019, we would try to stay positive. So I'm going to let Patrick vent. But this is not going to be a podcast in which we tear down a movie for an hour because we just don't we just do not do that. That said, I'm like not the biggest fan of the movie myself, but I still think there's a lot of things to like about the film. But here's the thing. Usually we ask five questions after the break. We're going to condense that to three questions today. Because I have a feeling that the first half of this podcast, regardless if you love the movie like Randy, like the movie like Simon, or are in between like me, I think there's going to be a lot of things that we wish M. Night had done differently. And so we're going to eliminate the what would you change question, okay? And I'm going to start positive. I'm going to say what I liked most about the film. And Simon, you're going to call me crazy because the other day I told you I didn't like this, but hear me out. So what I like most about the film is the way he shot it Ah! minus a few shots. Okay. Now here's, here's the reason why. Okay. This movie reminds me a lot of some of the Australian horror films that we've reviewed on the podcast in the past, like the Australian new wave in terms of like the way it shot the tone the atmosphere, even the soundtrack, the composer, the music he composed. But there are some specific shots that I thought were like kind of like amazing. For example, there's this one shot where he focuses on the young boy on the beach who's standing totally still that it looks like a freeze frame, but you know it's not a freeze frame because you can see things blowing in the wind in the background, but the kid isn't moving. And then the camera moves and then you realize that the kids are playing a game of freeze tag. And the way he shoots that, it's the way they used to shoot movies back in like the early 80s, late 70s in Australia, the Australian New Wave. It's really, really cool. So he has like these amazing sequences, these amazing shots, a lot of like terrifying shots of like people running around frantic, a lot of body horror. 
But then he has a lot of shots where I question his decision for using that specific shot because it's so distracting. Like, for example, when you superimpose a bunch of rocks over the faces of your cast. I'm like, okay, like, this isn't necessarily an experimental film, although he is experimenting. But that was like a really odd shot to add in the middle of your movie. He -hmm. has like a shot that's a close up of someone's earlobe. I'm like, what is this shot? So I always believe that a camera should never be too distracting. It should never take you out of the movie. And maybe it's just me because I focus a lot on visuals when I watch a movie. But I found a lot of times as great as his cinematography and his compositions and his framing and his blocking of shots is and was, I felt that a lot of times he made some really odd and kind of terrible decisions. So... um I think here, let me make a statement and I think we can all agree with this statement. Whatever M. Night Shyamalan did in this movie, he 100 percent did on purpose. We all agree on that. No, you know why? You know why I'm going to say no? Uh, he, he shot this film in the middle of a pandemic. So he had limitations. He had a small budget and he was in, he was on an island in which he could not control nature, which is interesting because the whole movie is about nature versus man. But it was a nightmare for him to shoot the film and he couldn't like he just couldn't control a lot uh, he couldn't control like for example when the tide would come in he couldn't control the temperatures he was in the middle of hurricane season he had so many problems filming the movie and i'll give you an example when he set out to make the movie he specifically told the actors that when you age so for example when the six-year-old ages and he's now like 15 he's not supposed to act like a six-year-old he's supposed to act like a 15-year-old but there was so much inconsistency throughout the whole entire film that he started to lose control of what was going on. So at times, the, the, the characters are aging physically and mentally, and at times he's breaking his own rules, and they are not. Mm. Well, I think what I really love about this movie, it Simon kind of hinted at, is just how absolutely deliberate everything is, almost to the point of exhaustion. I think for a lot of people, the dialogue in this movie in particular uh, as a particular pain point, but I think it is it, it all feeds into what he's trying to do with this film and what he's trying to say about, you know, his life and his career and reflecting on, you know, just being a parent and, and kind of what that experience is like as as they grow up. And it seems like, you know, you're in the same town and you're in the same house and all that stuff stays the same, but everything changes so quickly. And I think that deliberate nature is really what sold me on this film, even in some of its weaker moments. You know, I'm sure we'll we'll try and figure out what the hell mid-sized sedan was all about at some point. But I don't know. I know that that is that is probably what makes that film not work for a lot of people. But that that over elaborate deliberation on everything I thought was really effective in kind of setting the tone for this film as it goes through its what a hundred minute running time or whatever. I, Rick was, was was alluding to a conversation we had shortly after we both saw the film, and um, the funny thing was was Rick was telling me how repelled he was by how some parts of the film were shot, whereas uh, that was really the thing I responded to most about the entire film. Um, specifically, what I loved was the way that he uses, um, I guess, the the placement of bodies, the uh, the way the camp, the, the way that people are cropped out almost entirely of the frame and at strange moments. Um, focus is messed with to like absurd degrees for a mainstream film. Uh, and I, I love the way that it all contributed to this sense of the uncanny, these things that, that 
yes, they could have they could have shown more stuff more explicitly, but I th- I think to go this other way where so, so many of these moments of horror and transformation and shock, et cetera, are just are he communicates how uncanny and awful and shocking and sort of unprocessable by the human mind they are by not showing them at all. And in some cases by hardly showing anything, um, which it was honestly quite daring. But we agree on that, that what we don't agree on is what I'm trying to get to here is that he funded this movie. He directed the movie. He wrote the movie. It's his movie. And he's done this for his last four or five films, including the servant. It's his production. He has pretty much creative control. And we always talk about this on a podcast where sometimes having too much creative control can not be a good thing because you need someone to sort of like pinpoint some of the mistakes you're making. And so as much as I like say 90% of the film in terms of like the way it's shot, we're focusing on the way it's shot right now. There are times where I just kind of like questioned some of the decisions because I feel like as a filmmaker, as a director, you shouldn't still take your, your audience out of the movie. Now, maybe that's just me, but I feel like a lot of people that I know that I've spoken to have had the same complaint, but you're right. Those shots, especially when people are cropped or out of frame, um, you know, for example, when, they get to the beach and the kids discover the quote unquote buried treasure from the people who were there prior. You see them in frame kind of sort of, you see their feet and their hands, you don't see Mm. their face and they're picking up like the knife and the book and whatever, whatever it is that they find buried under the sand. And it had, it gives like it, it gives a really creepy, like, like feel to it. Right. You're like, cause you don't really know what's going on. And what's interesting about old, is for a movie that takes place in an open beach, it feels really claustrophobic. Yeah. Well, and that's, which is helped by some other stuff. But the other thing that I, I, I quickly realized afterwards that he's also doing is he's giving you some el- ellipses between instances of you seeing certain characters' faces. Uh, in some cases, that's a necessity because some of them end up being recast and played by new actors. Um, and it's it's a way of sort of getting around some of the awkward interstitial phases for some of those people. So I think there's there is logistical and thematic reasons for the wacky way in which this film is shot. I have nothing to say on this. <laughs> <laughs> right? you, don't, you don't think there's any validity to where any of us are coming from, Patrick? Uh, not on the good side. I mean, I agree with you that he does those things. I would say that he, uh, that it doesn't help the movie one bit. Uh, I would say that he's, he's always done that in his career. He's always had sort of, sort of odd shots like that. And he loves leaving things out of frame. And, and I think that can, that, that can help him quite a bit. And it has in the past. I think in this movie, like I said, I think all his instincts to me, all of his instincts are wrong. I don't think that any of those shots actually helped what was going on, but they also were just like, Anything that he was doing with the cinematography was lipstick on a pig. Like this thing was bad from the get go. It's one of the worst scripts that I've ever seen projected onto a mainstream movie theater. Um, so, like, and I mean everything, not just the dialogue, which of course he's always had a problem with. He sure um, has. But I, I, everything from the structure and the original conceit, which I know is not his own. I believe he based this off of a, a, a short story or, or a, a novel. French graphic novel. Yeah. So, the goddamn like French, you, you, something that's existential, you knew you had to blame the French. I mean, I think Rod Serling would have had a, a, a great time with this premise, but I don't think this was for M. Night Shyamalan, uh, because he, unfortunately, I think after Glass, he started to, or during Glass, he started to become self-important again, and that's the worst M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> like, that's when all of his horrible tendencies come out. Like, The Visit was interesting, like half good, half bad. 
but very, very fascinating. Uh, you know, and, and Split was a, a nice little return to form. And he was he was sort of in the doghouse at those points. He was he was a little humiliated, I think, uh, by Hollywood at that point. He had fallen out of favor with them. Um, but after Split became such a big hit, and The Visit was a, a decent sight hit as well, Glass showed that he had he totally got back that same Shyamalan that was Lady in the Water guy. You know, where he has something capital I important to say. And I sense that all running throughout this too, but it was more laughable, just like the end of Glass was to me. Like, I'm laughing at you because it's so clumsily done. He's so clumsy when he, to me when he does these, when he tries for something like this, when he tries for meaning. And I, I also think he's still sort of in his experimental phase that he started with The Visit, where he doesn't really know what he's doing. And that made him really interesting for a couple of movies, but combined with that, that I'm back, I'm a genius again kind of thing. It, And I don't mean this, I don't know if he's doing that personally. I just mean his filmmaking comes off as that way, right? And the, and the messages. I'm not talking about him as a person. I don't know him. The thing is, I, I think, like, here's where I'm on the same page with Patrick. Like, I do think as a filmmaker, he's really talented. Like, for example, when we talk about, like, the look of the film like you might not like you might not like the look of the film but what we i think like about the look of the film is m night is still a director who actually composes his shots and blocks his shots and tells the actors where to go where to stand what to do he doesn't create it in editing because nowadays with ten thousand cameras and you grab footage from 10 10 different angles you just kind of like go into the editing room and choose a shot you want from whatever vantage point right but he actually blocks his yeah. shots I, I 100% agree with you. I, I think I, I like him. I like going to see his movies. I, I was kind of being facetious when I said make me do this because I'm going to go see any M. Night Shyamalan movie because I think he is very interesting. He's one of the most interesting directors working out there. I think when he falls, he falls hard. And this is one of those cases for me. When I was watching this movie, I felt like, and again, I know it was a pandemic. I know he's shooting on, on a low budget. He doesn't have much time, et cetera, et cetera. But it kind of felt like, None of these actors rehearsed their lines. No one did a table line reading. No, There was no chemistry between the actors. So it's not, it's like, you know, M. Night has always had a problem with dialogue. Like we could all agree that he's not the best when it comes to writing dialogue. But when you're cast, when, when they come across, when their performances feel like they're actually reading the script right there live, like throughout the whole entire film, I just could not get over how unrealistic, unnatural the performances were because it was like they were just reciting the lines from the script without understanding what the movie was about or what their characters were about or who the, the characters were. None of it felt authentic. It just felt like they didn't know their lines. So to me, the way that came that came across was if you had asked me what this movie was based on, I would not have guessed a graphic novel. I would have guessed a stage play. Uh, and this movie really, to me, felt quite stagey in what was generally kind of a fun and engaging way. Uh, in I mean, I'm not the biggest Gail Garcia Bernal fan in the world. I think he's a fine actor, but like I can't think of anything he's been the best part of, really. You didn't watch all four seasons of Mozart in the Jungle? I sure did not. Um, and I like, you know, I like Alex Wolf just fine. Vicky creeps based on phantom thread alone is obviously a brilliant actor. Um, I don't think any of them get like a shitload here in terms of backstory characterization, et cetera. They're basically all down to a few, uh, a, a, a few physical or emotional characteristics, which are then exacerbated over time as they get old. 
Um, but I don't know. For some reason, it didn't bother me that much, the sort of stilted, affected dialogue. Uh, I mean, obviously, some of it is clunky as hell. Uh, there, you could you could easily have axed you could easily have axed like a third of the characters like before they even get to the beach and you would have had a leaner, better movie. Uh, I could in, in fact have done without the last 10 minutes pretty much entirely. Uh, but the dialogue would go like this. This is my wife. She's having a seizure. I'm a nurse. Who are you? I'm a doctor. Like, like, like the lines of dialogue. Were <laughs> You're not <so> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that's distinct. Like I think, like it's a distinct choice that he makes here. Yes, we know we can go on and on about how Shyamalan's shitty at dialogue. But I think in this movie, you know, people come to a Shyamalan movie expecting a certain experience, and I think he's always trying to find different ways to undercut that and discomfort his audiences. And I just think in this film, he decided to do it six or seven different ways at the same time. The way he blocked the shots, the way he, uh, you know, moved his characters around the frame, the way he engineered these scenes of dialogue that are like you said these stilted short very to the point uh, uh matters of conversation but i think it all works because this this movie is really trying to be a mainstream tone piece and to do so he's got to force the people watching this outside of their comfort zone and what they which what i think a lot of audiences would walk in with expectations on this film and yes, some of the ways that Shyamalan is going to do these things are clumsy. But again, I think in what he's aiming to achieve, um, I think he does a really good job with that. I think, you know, part of the reason that this cast doesn't feel like they have a lot of chemistry is because the idea is that all of these people, whether to what degree they are supposed to know each other or not, are essentially strangers to each other who have shoved themselves in a foreign place and now have no escape, but have to deal with the fact that they don't know each other. And they've spent all this time together and all these years together for, you know, these little nuclear groups. And then you have this larger group of people that have no idea who they are. Are you going to have a very, you know, fun back and forth conversation with a bunch of panic strangers? I don't think so. So I think even though like there's not some naturalistic, realistic tone to the dialogue here, I think for what he was trying to do, as a genre piece that it is very much effective in doing that because we're, we're going to just agree to disagree. Cause there's no way I'm ever going to agree with you. Ken Lung's line delivery in this movie is atrocious. It's one of the worst performances I've seen in any mainstream movie <laughs> ever. I mean, I was watching wow. lost recently, which I love that show and I could not help but think of Lost. And I'm like, can you imagine if the performances and the line delivery in lost in that first episode was like old, no one would continue to watch Lost or, or tune into episode two. I'm that blows me away because I, I it, you know, the, what's funny is I was watching Ken Long in this movie and I was like, he's behaving exactly like he was on Lost. Like he kind of just plays. I think that was the point. I think yeah. that was the distinct point by Shyamalan to, to give a nod to Lost. That and also, I mean, I think there's I I don't think you guys are giving him enough credit for some of the some of the uh, sly meta humor going on here. Like not only. Are, is are all these characters kind of blankly like introducing each other and what they do but there's also the uh i forget who's playing the name of the actor playing the younger version of alex wolf um but he's literally going around asking people what their name and occupation is uh which i just i i thought that was a fun kind of screenwriterly nod to like the silliness of exposition while also being like kind of believably something a dumb kid would do um, See, I, I had know. a different take on that. I thought that was, uh, I don't think that that was sly at all. I think that was Shyamalan just trying to make sure that he had everything wrapped up in the end. He needed somebody to say, I'm a cop at one point so that he could have his ending. He needed people's jobs to be known to the audience. And he didn't know how to convey that information in a in a good way, in a, in a slick way. 
uh, in a natural way. So he just did what M. Night Shyamalan always does with dialogue, which is be as blunt and direct as possible. Now, it is a style. So uh, we can talk about this. I like Shyamalan's dialogue, even in his good movies, is, is very stylized. And either you roll with it or you don't. And Randy, you were saying that you, you think that it actually really, really worked for this movie. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, I can take it sometimes depending on the movie. In this particular one, though, it, the movie didn't work. And so the dialogue stuck out more for me like a sore thumb. And I probably reviled it more than I normally do. I mean, I can watch I can watch The Village before I can watch this. And, and that has some horrible dialogue too. <laughs> but that's the thing with Shyamalan, right? Is that he's willing to throw the dice like that. Like yeah. he knows what he does and he's, he'll, he puts it all on the table. And that's what I really appreciate with this film. Even with films like, like split. And I guess I agree with the, some of the indulgences of glass, but I think that since he's been kind of, uh, Shyamalan in the public that he's had to, he's exercised a restraint that I don't think suits his filming. I think it's kind of what cursed, the last airbender was it was just a mismatch of things and too much studio pressure i think you need to give this guy a budget and let him do his thing for better or worse and see what the results are sometimes it might be signs sometimes it might be the happening but i don't think anybody is going to leave that film without having a strong reaction and if, if that's not a successful film i don't know what is well here's the thing with with Shyamalan. uh it, he had a string of successful films and they did keep throwing budgets at him and then he had a string of absolute bombs and that's when you stop getting big budgets. So I, he has not earned big budgets again. He can continue to do his stylized filmmaking, and he'll have a hit here and there maybe. But I don't think that anybody's going to be throwing anything at him until he has a string of hits. And right now, like that isn't going to happen with old. It's not going to go down as like a, you know a, a massive success. But it was a low budget movie, so it's it's going to probably be successful. Uh, the same as the visit and split, by the way. As, as long, it's kind of it. It makes me a little sad, to be honest. That uh, M Night, as much as I I do like him, uh, especially now, um, it's kind of sad that he's one of the only guys who gets to play around with kind of mid budget movies because like there's so well, much better Simon way to do things. Because he funded the movie himself. Yes, so I know. And I just want to note that that Glass, you know, whether we want to argue it's a piece of shit or not, had a twenty million dollar budget and made two hundred fifty million dollars. So he's still effective. Yeah, he can be, uh, and I think. It, he was also sort of coasting off of Split and sort of using that. I, I I didn't hate Glass. I just thought it was mediocrity, that's all. I thought it was like totally watchable, but nothing really. Actually, Glass was the opposite of this movie. I didn't have a strong reaction one way or the other. <laughs> so I'm going to just quickly say that like the whole reason why I wanted to review this movie, and I told Patrick this on Slack, was because it is his movie. It's his vision. It's because he funded it. And I always think that that is interesting. I would prefer to see a movie like old at the box office than just your typical generic, like Hollywood Marvel movie, like no offense, like they're all the same. So like, I wish I liked the movie more because I'm a huge fan of, for example, the happening. I don't hate this movie. I don't love it. Like that's the problem. Like I went in thinking I would love it. And I walked away thinking that there's too many problems for me to actually enjoy the movie. Like the way you guys did. The uh, having enjoyed this movie, I, I want to specifically quickly mention two things I very much did not enjoy. Um, the character played by um, Charles's wife. Yes, uh, the, the character played by Abby Lee Crystal. Uh, I have no fucking idea what I mean, I, I kind of have an idea what M. Night was going for with that character and that arc. He's telling his kids to drink their milk, I guess. But I, <laughs> I just found it so rep so ugly and 
Uh, well, it leads okay. into that, you know, you know, beauty with women fades over time and then they're decrepit monsters. Yeah. <laughs> so just it's kind just, of like, <sighs> it's really, it's a bad look considering like, I don't know, the rest of the movie just didn't have that, that nasty vibe. Um, I think it's really her in mid-sized yeah. sedan where I, where I do stop my praise of this movie and go, what the fuck is going on? Well, the mid-sized sedan thing at least could be sneaky social commentary or something, but the I don't know. The other th- anyway, we'll get into the specifics later if we want to, but uh I there's a very I would just I would snip off the last ten minutes of this movie pretty much. But you see, like her name was Crystal, right? In the movie? Yeah. Okay, so the thing about her character is I actually thought she was one of the better performers. I actually like thought she did a really good job for what she yes, was she told did. to play. I didn't have a problem with her condition because that comes into like that becomes like a major like not it becomes like a sort of like a big jump scare or like it you know brings out like some of the body horror in a film right but what i didn't like about her is that she's portrayed as this like really like kind of like terrible person like okay because she's the pretty blonde does she also have to be a terrible person like why is it every time they put a blonde girl in a movie she's like a bitch like i like to me it's just like i it was lazy I, yeah it's lazy um and so that's what i didn't like about her character but moving on to more things that I did like about the film, um, I, I did like the atmosphere and the tone and, and the music because I thought the music was really creepy at times. But what's what's weird about the film, though, is like this movie is kind of like really sad, depressing, scary, terrifying at, at, at times, because can we just mention the fact that like a baby is born and then I think dies like 30 minutes, not even like 30 seconds later. I mean, he actually kills a baby in the movie. And that was the weird thing about the film is that I know there's touches of humor and he, he throws in some dark comedy, but at, at, at times there's some like really heavy subject matter that he addresses. And I didn't know how to react. Like I, like when the baby died, I mean, for me, the movie was dead in the water. Like I just could not enjoy the rest of the movie because that really hit me hard. Um, has someone who, you know, held my baby niece in my hands before she died when she was born. The thing about a movie like The Happening is it's 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 played off like a, a straight up B movie. Like it's not it's not playing itself too seriously. It's it's not a you know what I mean like it's like the dialogue like I mean the movie's about killer trees if I if I remember correctly. It's it's a movie about the environment. Like it has things to say, but you don't have a scene where a baby dies. You know, and so like in this movie, it was like, what kind of movie you're trying to make M. Night? Are you trying to make a family friendly, like G rated thriller? Like if this movie at times is really deep and disturbing and dark and twisted. So then the answer is yes, he was trying to make a horror film. I think like I think that I think the baby thing is really effective. I think that's like, you know, as you think about like this film and the character's relationship with time and, you know, the idea of like processing a major trauma like that something that you know is obviously horrible but something that people experience every day and can be a defining moment in somebody's life but when you look back on your life and you look back on you know say you have a 90 year lifetime that's just going to be a blip it's going to be gone it's going to come and go so quick in the larger scheme of things and i think that's what this movie is is trying to do with these horrible moments is that these moments are so horrible they hit so hard but they're things that ostensibly happen to a family or a group of families or a community every single day and time does nothing but move forward that's the one thing in this movie that cannot be stopped you can stop i mean in theory m night Shyamalan likes to think you could stop large pharmaceutical companies which that may be debatable but everything in this film can be stopped by something 
You can pull a tumor out. You can try and help. You can get more calcium in your system. You can try and ease someone. I think the one thing that can't be solved here is you can't, and this is something that M. Night Shyamalan's movie has dealt with in the movies I've dealt with in the past is you can't like mental degenerative disease is not something you can deal with. So that's why that plays out as longly and horribly as it does. It almost feels like that is, you know, given that and some of the content of the visit before that, like that's something that M. Night Shyamalan has either seen or experienced in his life and has an understanding of that. But like the baby thing, I think it's, it's really, it's one of the more, it's disturbing as hell, but I think it's one of the more compelling moments of the movie because after that, there is a general sense, but there's a realization by everyone that shit is happening so fast that this may be the only chance we have. Like for the for the core family here, they realize that this is the only chance we're going to have to reconcile our shit. So you have to deal with a marriage falling apart, not seeing what happens to your kids as they grow up, like all of those things. So I think as a as a piece of this larger mosaic of what he's painting, I think the baby is a really, actually a really important part of it. See, that's where I, com- I completely disagree. I thought it was sloppy, tasteless. I didn't think it worked at all. I thought the the whole subplot of the baby just got sort of like lost in the shuffle and forgotten about like two minutes later. I really did not like it. It kind of like offended me and it, it killed the movie for me. It really, really killed the movie for me. And like, you know, I can watch train spotting, which is like one of my favorite movies, of all, movies of all time. And there is a scene where a baby dies, but that baby's not forgotten. And there is, an aftermath and we do get to see how these characters react and deal with that grief and loss. And in this film, it's, it's like played for laughs. Like I did not like it. And I, I can't agree with you. On I, mean, that. I don't think that, that the things played for laughs. I think ultimately it's, it's like, it's played for last because it, the, the whole thing is in the graphic novel, it, I, which I haven't read, apparently it's very sexual and this becomes more of a major like plot point. But, like, it's played for last because people were laughing because, okay, so the guy and the girl who were, I guess, six years old are now maybe 15, 16. And so they had sex and they didn't realize that they were going to get pregnant. And, like, I'm sorry, it is played for laughs at the start. Like, it really is. When it, yeah, when they're initially, when, when she's pregnant and it's just an absurd situation, especially with Alex Wolf and his sort of half teenage, half child, half child acting. But I don't think it's played for laughs after the baby dies. No, not well not after the baby dies but like they forget about the baby like one minute later but he also the weird thing though is again like they're supposed to be age 15 and 16 but really they were like mentally six and five but they're having sex like, i mean yeah that part is weird. kind but i actually thought that was like cool like in, a, in as a as a fucked up thing to have happen in a pg-13 film that, that essentially children are fucking like well and that's, that's how that's like parents when when you if you talk to parents when they're going through their child's teenage years that's often the thing they have to contend with and it's difficult for parents is that they still view their teenagers as children even though they're starting to make adult decisions so i think that's like a visual manifestation of like you know maybe one of m night Shyamalan's deepest fears about his daughter or something like that who was you know involved who is involved in the production of his work now like you know, as your children grow up, you still see them as your children. You know, my my parents probably still see me as the twelve year old version of me sometimes, but it's not who I am anymore. But that this this movie, we don't have the time to contend with that because time is moving so goddamn fast. So I think again, it, it's it's all in trying to achieve this specific tone. Randy, you'll always be twelve to me. <laughs> but, but, but Randy, I do like the concept of the film, like the conceit. Like I do like the premise, and I like the idea of thematically it's like they're growing old let's enjoy the moment which we get at the very end when the the older couple guy and what was her name 
Prissa. Anyhow, whatever. When the older couple are sitting at the beach and they're just relaxing, staring at the beach and enjoying the moment. It's like live in the moment because you're going to get old. This is inevitable. Inevitable. It's going to happen. And like, I like thematically what the film is doing. I just kind of feel like it didn't work for me like it did for you. There are, there are mm-hmm. moments and things about the movie that I do like, like most M night films, but I mean, it's not my least favorite M night film. Like I still would prefer to watch this over. I mean, I would never watch last airbender. Ever what about again. lady in the water? Oh, I love lady in the water. Sure. Ah, all right. I forgot. We argued about this <laughs> <laughs> many years ago. That movie was horrible too, but not nearly as bad as this one for me. Um, I got a this question one... for you guys. Do you think? Because I, I would, I don't think this movie has a twist. Do you guys think this movie has a twist? Not really. It's not, not a twist. Not really. It's just that's just the way the movie ends. No, it it has a twist because you can go back and watch the movie with a completely different eye now. Now that you know what happened, I mean that's the definition of a twist. It's, it's more of a half twist, I think, in terms of like what you would expect from a Shyamalan movie. Because I mean, they're hinting to it. 30 minutes into the film that something's going on. So I don't think, you know, it's not the, it's not the typical Shyamalan twist that you get at the end of the movie where it's like, you know, like what glass did. But they legit say someone's watching us. Someone's watching us. That's a camera. So, you know, someone's watching them. Okay. So you don't know it's a pharmaceutical company, but that's not a twist. That's just a story. That's just how it ends. If we're going to call this a twist then every movie has a twist. Yeah, I mean, th- yeah. To me, a twist would be, oh, it was actually the afterlife all along, and the and the doctor and the doctors on the ridge are actually angels, like Jacob's ladder. Um, but um... <laughs> but but by that, I mean, I had a friend that sat next to me in the Sixth Sense and to- whispered to me, "Hey, he's dead." I'd never seen the movie, but picked up on all the hints. I mean, that's still a twist. That's not the same. I don't think. I, I, I know he's telegraphing a little bit more, but it but a it is more. somewhat of a twist. No, but the I, sixth I think sense, it still qualifies. The sixth sense presents Bruce Willis has like yes, there there's hints throughout the whole entire film. And when you go and rewatch the film, it's crazy when you look at the breadcrumbs and it's right in front of you. But yeah. it still presents Bruce Willis as a person who's alive. It, it's tricking Spoilers the audience for the purposely. This film is not purposely tricking the audience. It just so happens that at the end we discover it's a pharmaceutical company. It could have been anyone or anything. But I'm not saying not a it's a good twist. You're you're basically like I'm not going to put it up against that, but I think it still qualifies. But the, the, I don't the, I don't know, man. I don't. That's the twist. thing. I don't think it qualifies as a as, twist. As as soon as you have, which uh, is the uh, least interesting part of this movie, by the way. <laughs> as as soon as you have a dozen people on a beach, each with a unique medical condition, and there's people monitoring them from a distant cliffside, it's kind of like put one put 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 two and two together, you know. No, I, well, like I said, I didn't say it was good, but I think it I think it does still qualify. Yeah, I um, agree. We, <laughs> on that sour note, ah! uh, <laughs> we should take a quick break here. But uh, before we come back, here's another clip from old. Everything's going to be okay. What's your name? I'm Trent. This is my sister, Maddox. How old are you guys? I'll guess. I'm good at this. <laughs> You're 11, right, Trent? I'm six. No. Really, are you 10, 11? He's not lying. He's six. I'm specifically six and a quarter. She's 11. They're feeling unsafe. There is a lot going on here. They're playing with us. Let's leave it. Have you seen my children? (laughs) Is is everyone trying to play a joke on us? What? Aren't these your children? I'm right here, Mom. 
All right, that was another clip from old. Uh, we have reached the portion of the podcast where we ask our now five slash scratch that out three questions. Um, all right, we're going to start off positive because that's the way we roll here. I know that's the way we try to roll, as Rick explained. Uh, we're going to go with Randy. What was your favorite scene from old? Oh, shit, man. Uh, that's tough. I think for me, it's it's the moment of the parents on the beach at night when they're kind of, look, man, it's such a good moment. It's such a great reflection on like, the time like the lifespan of a marriage and the regrets that go into that and the things that are never told to each other and then and the moments that might have been and and have already passed and there's something really bittersweet and touching about that that i think you know it's kind of an obvious note for the movie to hit on if you see where this couple is at the beginning of the film like it's it's kind of obvious that that's going to be the big you know, reconciliation at the heart of the film, but I don't think it's any less meaningful the way it comes across, the way it's shot on the beach. The, I think that's where the dialogue in this movie really, really worked for me is that it's, it's stilted, but it's to the point it's quiet, but it's not lengthy. You know, I compare it to something like, I don't know, a show like Grey's Anatomy where people don't stop shutting the fuck up about things that are happening elsewhere. Like they get to that point, they say what they need to say and they move on. Like there's, there's an abruptness that is recognized both by the filmmaker in where this moment appears in the film, but also by the characters and where they are in this experience. And man, it's like there is one or two scenes like this in every M. Night Shyamalan movie where he feels like he picked this out of somebody else's work. But God, I love that scene so much. I really do. Sorry, Simon. No, I'm going to pick that one as well, except I'm going to point out something different. Well, a couple other things about it. First of all, I feel like it's it's the only scene in the movie where I feel like Vicky Creeps actually gets to earn her paycheck a little bit. Uh, and she's, like I said, obviously based on Phantom Thread, a great actor. She doesn't get to do as much here, but she does do a pretty damn good job in this scene. Also, this scene features the return of, well, I, it must happen a few times. I'd have to rewatch to be sure. But um, in a scene that you mentioned earlier, Ricky, you have um, you have the camera operator going backwards and forwards, sort of tracking this children's game. And here it comes back in a, in a sideways motion as we sort of follow one, you know, one person falls and then the other falls behind them. Uh, this couple who that dies sort of within, you know, quote unquote months, but actually minutes of each other as we see or seconds really of each other as we see in the film. Uh, and it. I just realized also that it seems to mimic the 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 moment the the motion of a breath, inhale and exhale, the way it goes back and forth, and uh, I just thought it was a beautiful and I dare say, uh, poetic moment. All right, uh, Rick, what about you? What's your favorite scene? Well, I think that's the best scene, and I do agree that it really reminds you of like stories you hear of older couples when one passes away, like let's say the husband passes away, the wife passes away like three months later or very shortly after. So I think that's the best scene in the film. But the question is, what's your favorite scene? Yes. And my favorite scene is the scene in the cave when Crystal's body basically starts falling apart. She's aged. She must be like 80 maybe 90 years old at this point in time. She has a medical condition. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but she needs calcium. So her bones are falling apart. And the way her body gets all twisted and and the way the the kid, um, Trent, 
the way Trent, who by the way is no longer a kid, but whatever, the way Trent has the lighter and he also plays around with lighting because you only have the lighter lighting the cave. I just like the way it cuts to black and then we get the lighter, lights up the scene, and then each and every single time he lights up the cave, her body gets more and more twisted. I just really thought that was like creepy and I like the the body horror in this film. What's your favorite part, Patrick? For me, it was the closing credits. Uh, when oh, I, finally got boo, to I seriously boo, hated every boo, single boo. scene in this movie. And I'm not exact doing that for hyperbole. Like, I really did try to think. I had a couple days to process. You didn't I, even like calcium bones at the end? Come on. No. My initial anger, like, led me to go straight to a bar after this. I was going to try to go see The Green Knight, but I honestly was so angry when I got out of this movie that I had to go straight to a bar and drink it away. But then I had a couple days to think about it. I was like, okay, I got to find something positive. Honestly, the closing credits, the fact that this movie ended, that is the most positive thing that I could say about it. Um, I, I seriously, seriously hated this movie and I cannot say it enough. I'm I'm just not, I don't feel like I, I understand your position on this movie. Could you make it a little clearer? <laughs> yeah, so I won't be doing anything positive, period. All right, fair um, enough. So I'll skip, the, I'll skip the MVP question. Uh, but for you guys, uh, who's your MVP? I'm going to go first. Because I know you guys are going to choose the director slash writer. So I'm just going to pick Aaron Pierre, who plays mid-sized Sedan. Because this is the one character that I can't stop thinking about. Because I feel like there is a twist. And I just don't know what the twist is. Because the movie actually opens with mid-sized Sedan staring out into the beach he's already on the beach with the girl before they get to the beach and so that's what i'm confused about i'm like i don't understand the character of mid-sized sedan it could just be sloppy writing it could be just um you know his character wasn't fleshed out or maybe he's the one character in the entire beach who is not we don't basically have someone else explaining who they are you know what i mean and maybe that's what makes him mysterious and may, maybe makes him like kind of like, I don't know if interesting is the, the word I'm going to use, but just like he's a big question mark for me. Because like, you know, you mentioned when the kid goes around, right? And he does explain why the kid does this. He goes around, he asks people what's their name and what they, what they do for a living, right? Which, by the way, there's a bunch of TikTokers who actually do this and make a living off that, going around asking people what they do for a living. But anyways, so the kid does that, which to me makes sense because kids do do this. and They, they explain, absolutely do, yeah. They do, and they explain that the kid has a condition where he can remember everyone's name and what they do, and that's why he's obsessed with asking people what they do. Fine, that totally makes sense. I've actually met a kid like that. But he never asks mid-sized sedan what he does. Like we do have the girl who points him out on the beach. He's like, oh my God, that's the rapper, which by the way is like again, really bad dialogue and clumsy and just a little too coincidental. But mid-sized sedan, man, his character has me puzzled. Well, I think it's 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 all about the performance. I mean, yes, his place in the in the screenplay is like kind of ambiguous and weird, especially what goes down with Rufus Sewell's character, by the way, shout, shout out to Rufus Sewell from dark city, who I haven't seen in a movie in a long time. He's, he's looking older. Uh, but uh, Aaron Pierre's performance is he's just so large and stoic and like says as little as possible that he really stands out in this movie. All right. So Randy, what about you? So I think, um, I don't know. The performance that I really enjoyed in this film was Thomas and McKenzie's as the kind of teenage version of uh, Maddox, who was certainly the, of the two kids, the one who had the less 
eventful aging period. But I think her trying to come to terms with, like, trying to quietly come to terms with everything and keep her shit together while all the adults around her were completely falling apart and murdering each other and losing their goddamn minds was really interesting. And I thought that performance, especially, I was kind of really paying attention to her knowing that she's the lead in Edgar Wright's next film uh, alongside um, uh, Chess Lady. Who's David I'm forgetting right now? <laughs> um, um, Queen's Gambit. Oh, the Queen's, Queen's Gambit. Gambit. Oh, yes. Anna Taylor-Joy. Yeah, Anna Taylor-Joy. That's what I'm thinking of. Because they're splitting the <laughs> protagonist role in Edgar Wright's The Last Night in Soho. Um, I don't really think this movie is going to inform her uh, performing ability in that film, but I just thought I just thought she was an interesting. It was an interesting performance that displayed some nuance where other characters didn't really have the chance or show the desire to really express that. Mm-hmm. Simon, before you answered a question, can you also explain why it is you hate the happening but love old? Because to me, the two movies are so similar that I can't understand why someone would have such extreme. Uh, opinions on the two films that are so different i mean i could probably honestly if i revisited the happening now i think i could probably enjoy it as uh as an absurdist comedy how much um, do you like mark Wahlberg in bad I, the thing is i really don't like mark Wahlberg very much um in fact uh I, th- I think the rise of john cena means we don't need mark Wahlberg anymore for anything um but uh i don't know i mean i think that uh, old doesn't feel like any uh, like uh, like his previous films. I think for the reasons that you were sort of highlighting slash potentially complaining about in terms of its heaviness. But if I'm point, look obviously if if you're going to pick out an MVP, it has to be and you like anything about this movie, it has to be Shyamalan because he did everything. But um, we always say that's the lazy thing to do. Uh, so uh, I'm going to give it to the DP um, because uh, I realize like obviously. Uh, Shyamalan had a very specific vision here and uh this guy also shot it follows and and uh well and glass under the silver lake all kinds of cool cool shit uh, I think he did some cool shit here with uh with a really with what's really a pr- a pretty limited setting uh so uh shout out to that guy the the DP is um Michael Gulakis right and and just I, I mentioned this earlier but when they're filming on this specific beach when the tide rises, they can't continue filming. So that's what became so problematic because it looks like it could be an easy shoot. You're out in the middle of a beach. It's nice and warm. You know, you don't have like city traffic, et cetera, et cetera. But it was so incredibly problematic. Can you imagine trying to light the damn set? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going to call it a set here. And I do agree. He did a pretty damn good job. And I'm not sure how long it took them to film the movie, but I was told that he didn't have very long because again he shot it during a pandemic and it was hurricane season and they needed to wrap up before the hurricane actually hit the beach about two months according to wikipedia that's a pretty decent shoot a little under two months but he's got to work quick he also has a lower budget for this movie uh, all right, so we always ask the question, the Howard Hawks test, and Rick and Simon, of course, are very familiar with this, but Randy, I don't know how familiar you are with the supposed Howard Hawks quote that a great movie has to have three great scenes and no bad ones. So by that criteria, does Old pass the Howard Hawks test? And this is where Old breaks my heart, because like I agree with Simon and all of you here that the last 10 minutes of this movie are utter bullshit. 
<laughs> and when we leave the island and the cop is the hero, I said, you almost had me there, M. Night, 95% of the way. Uh, so I'm going to say that it fails. There are definitely, I could definitely pick out three great scenes in this film. I might even count the baby scene as one of them if we really wanted to get into a fight. But I do think ultimately it fails the test because there are multiple bad scenes in this movie. Now, wait, what uh, what did not work for you specifically about the ending? Do you guys not like the, the whole, the whole um, pharmaceutical company thing or... I personally like the concept of, of that it's a pharma, pharmaceutical company doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, my ideal version of the ending would simply have been we get enough information really to piece together what's happening. Um, we maybe even get a sort of cabin in the woods style, like quick sort of cruel reveal of what's happening, but no triumphant ending, no like coral escape uh, and no, so no like, yeah, basically like, I'm okay. sorry, but it was the only logical ending. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if I would say they had to die. You could have left it open to us guessing. But can I just remind everyone what the last shot of the movie was? He's in the helicopter and he delivers the worst line of the entire film. Mm, it's like, not great. It's not great. So apart from the pharmaceutical company, we also have him coming back to the hotel. He just so happens to meet a cop right away, like Randy says. And everyone's arrested. And it just, it felt so easy. You know, like such an easy way to wrap up the story. And then you get the additional extra two scenes with that final shot in the helicopter. It was terrible. And I'm sorry, unless your name is fucking Martin Shkreli and you get arrested for securities fraud, pharmaceutical company reps do not go to jail. This is true. I think like that, the whole ending for me is just there's just we linger on it too long. It's it's too much where the movie was able to I know Patrick would disagree with this, but I, I where the able the movie was able to restrain itself in other areas, I think it it is the moment where it falls back on M Knight's uh preachiness sometimes. And uh yeah, it's not it's not a great look. It needed to be a two second thing at the very end and and he wanted to have the cake and eat it too and then put the do the dishes after and put everything back in the cabinets and i just don't think all of that was necessary it really wasn't so i guess we're all gonna agree that it doesn't pass the howard hawks test because there's at least one bad scene at least and i'd say there's a few yeah with patrick he's just gonna say that every scene is bad that's called the movie yeah (laughs) okay so i think Um, we got time for one more question i I want yeah yeah, i wanted to ask you guys where this ranks now in in Shyamalan's uh you know his his filmography i'd probably top five at the top off my head for sure for sure well first of all we should go with like have you seen all of his movies is there are the ones that you've missed um randy have you seen all of his movies i've not seen all of the visit but everything else i believe i've seen i know i saw lady in the water at some point and blocked it out of my memory but and his two like uh, work for hire ones after earth and the last airbender Oh yeah, mm-hmm. he didn't write those. Those <laughs> were like those were just. And you've seen his first two movies, paychecks. Wide Awake and Praying with Anger. No, yeah, what kind of a fan are you, Randy? Oh, apparently I'm not a fan. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I missed his two his one million dollar movie from 1994. I apologize, but <laughs> okay. So you would rank this though in your top five, barring those other movies. Oh yeah, I definitely think this is in the upper echelon of. You know, I don't think it's quite as a effective or as memorable as something like 
like signs and maybe I just saw signs at a more formative time in my film going experience, but I mean, this movie beats the shit out of, you know, stuff like the happening. Uh, so I, I quite, quite enjoy that. Signs is a really good movie. Uh, I like signs. So. I actually haven't seen it since it was in the theaters. It, it holds up very well. I mean, That's again, clear. has, has all, you know, all of Shyamalan's flaws are on display, but his, and it has Mel Gibson. <laughs> The, the strengths far overcome the weaknesses in signs. Um, all right. So what about uh, for you, Simon? There's a whole bunch I haven't seen, especially the recent ones. Like I of, of the last okay. f- of the last like five or six movies he's done. The only one I've seen was Split, which I thought was honestly not that great. You got to check out The Visit. <laughs> I, think uh, I will. I, I will. I will check out The Visit um, of the ones I've seen. It's bonkers. It's, I just got to uh, say it's a bonkers movie. Of the ones I've seen, I like this way more than Lady in the Water, um, The Happening. I'd I'd put this about on on par with Signs, maybe a little under. Wow, that's high praise. All right, but you know, the Signs also has a dumb ending. Let's not forget. Yeah, but it's it's outweighed by the whole rest of the movie. I think. That's true. The rest of the movie is 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 perfectly good. Simon, where do you rank Wayward Pines in in Shyamalan's catalog? Oh my God, Wayward Pines! I forgot that. Or even just episode five of Wayward Pines. Where where does that rank? Wait, in which one is episode five? Tell me. That's what the one reveal that it's actually taking place in like the year four thousand. Oh, I love that. Don't spoil it. Okay, never mind. <laughs> no one cares. No one cares. All right, Rick, where do you put this? Uh, where do you put this movie? You 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 kind of said something, but I didn't catch what you said. Okay, excluding his TV work, I've actually watched all of his movies, including his first two films, and I would not specifically place it in order like one, two, three, four, five. All you know what I mean? Like what I would do is I would break it up into three categories. So. There's M. Night, the great filmmaker, his great movies, which includes movies like Science and Breakable, Sixth Sense, and you can even squeeze and split. Some people would put The Visit as well. We can argue. Then there is the studio for hire. I'm working with a big studio system. I don't have much control. And it's more like I'm just picking up a paycheck, which is the movies that I really don't like, which is After Earth, The Last Airbender, even his first two movies wide awake praying with anger and then you have the third category which is m night doing whatever he wants to do his best and worst impulses all in one movie someone needs to be by his side and tell him not to do specific things because it's just a free-for-all and it's his personal films it's when he starts experimenting and you get movies like the happening lady in the water and old And some people will dig it and some people will hate it. There'll be a hate or love relationship with these films. So I put it in that category. I happen to enjoy it happening. I've seen it twice. I don't think it's a great movie. I just think it's a really fun B movie, I guess. But but like, you you know, you look at Lady in the Water and that's the best example of that third category of M. Night films where it's so personal to him, like to the point where he actually writes in a film critic has the, one of the main characters, you know, to make fun of the film critics who were giving him bad reviews for his entire, like not his entire career, but the last three movies he made prior. Like, I mean, and the the writer that he plays is going to save the world with his writing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
I, I kind of the thing is I don't like Lady in the Water, but now that you've said that, I want to like it because I just <laughs> I wish more I wish more people had the moxie. I also just realized, and I'm not going to unpack this or explain it because no one's going to care. But I also just realized that M Night Shyamalan is the Billy Corgan of filmmaking, and that makes me respect him more. <laughs> but but like the, the thing about old is I'm I'm I don't dislike. I, I'm not going to say I hate the movie. Like there's things I like about the movie, and it's a movie I want to see again, and I might like it a lot more on, on a second viewing. I just don't love it as much as you guys do. And I don't hate it as much as Patrick does. I'm just, I, I see the flaws and I see what I think he did well. And I do appreciate the fact that he went out and made this movie on his own with his own money. And I can't really complain. You could do whatever you want with your money. You hired these people, you made a movie. A lot of people saw it. Good for you. That's a, that, that's yeah, they should put that on the poster. Yeah, exactly. That pretty much sums it. So up. I, I wanted to ask a quick question because I think we got a bit of time here. Yeah. So what what I want to know, and I guess really it's Randy and Simon that, that are going to have to answer this question. Ooh. It didn't bug you that the movie explains everything and everyone, like like to the point where it's like every single character has someone by their side to explain who they are, what their name is, what they do, what their occupation is, and if you didn't catch on the first time they're going to repeat it later i'm a nurse i'm a nurse i'm a therapist i'm a therapist i'm a therapist like didn't you know i'm a therapist i said it five times that did not bug you well maybe m night Shyamalan just realizes that audience have gotten really dumb and need to be reminded of stuff constantly or else they can't continue to pay attention or you could say that it's efficiency in the medium and just keeping things simple i'm a nurse great i'm a doctor let's move on i don't need a 20 minute backstory for how everybody got into their careers and what they do, which is how I feel a lot of movies pad out their dialogue now in their scenes by just talking about extraneous bullshit that nobody cares about. Like this movie is getting to the fucking point every single minute that it's there. And I respect it for that. Uh, I mean, like I said, I, I, I sort of hinted at this earlier, but I'm pretty sure all the talk about name and occupation and the sort of like, it, it even happens early with someone at the, um, before they even get on the beach, someone keeps introducing themselves over and over. Someone who's not even a character, I don't think. Like, not like a, a real character. Um, I, I think he's do he's doing this on purpose um, as, a, as a way of eliciting a reaction, which clearly worked because we all reacted to it. We just, we all reacted to it in completely different ways. Um, and I, I think even the, even the, 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 the baby, that you know, the dead baby sequence, I think is a good example of that because, we had totally polar opposite reactions, but we all reacted strongly. And I think you sort of hinted at this in your, in your intro, Ricky, I think uh, as much as I don't always love his movies, uh, I respect the hell out of the fact that he takes big swings. Um, and yeah. And I think, I think we all agree on that. But, but I think like, you know, if you just a small example, like the doctor, right, there is a scene where they are having breakfast. The, the waiter could have walked over and introduced himself and said, yes, doctor, what can I get for you or something? I mean, there's a way to introduce him as a doctor without. Yeah, actually... but subtlety is for pussies. I think this is what M. Night Shyamalan is real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, I had a little bit different reaction to something. See, I don't think that he swung for the fences in anything. I guess that's why I hated every single instinct that he had here. I thought that everything was <laughs> the worst trait of his, like the most banal M. Night Shyamalan movie you could possibly like the baby thing. I actually forgot it even happened until you guys mentioned it. And then I realized like, yeah, I didn't even care about that. It didn't even elicit a reaction for me. Cause like Rick said, it was gone so fast. I was like, well, that was dumb. Why do we even have that in here? Uh, it has absolutely zero emotional effect on any of the characters. It was just, 
I, I thought that most of the movie was just him playing with time and like, here, here's this person a little bit older now. Here, I don't really know what, what they're supposed to act like, even though they're 50 now. Do they act like a kid or do they act like an adult? So I'm going to have them do a little bit of both and nothing's going to well, make sense. Let me tell sense. you, if you age 30 years in, in 12 hours, would you know how to, if, if you should act like a five-year-old or a 50-year-old? Or would you, you would kind of be like stuck a five-year-old. You, you would act like a five-year-old. It was pretty obvious that all that was advancing was tissue, like was their actual tissue. You wouldn't gain any knowledge. <laughs> you wouldn't gain any actual confidence that comes with actual life. I think the tissue. sign that teenagers get horny is the sign that, yes, your brain is changing as you're, as you're growing. I, I think, it, I think uh, Patrick, what's happening, I mean, and this is something the movie doesn't actually spell out. I think there is sort of a war going on between the mind and the body. And like these characters, these people do have impulses, like for instance, to fuck and to reproduce, but they don't necessarily understand them. They sort of, they, they, they may even take it as being funny or a joke, which is why when she first emerges pregnant, it is, does have sort of a humorous, uh, kind of absurd, uh, pallor to it. Uh, I, so I wasn't I, I, questioning that, that, that I understand that was a hormonal reaction, like whatever. I, I just mean that every single like decision that these people do, it's it's all tailored to what he needs from the script. Does he need them to act like a kid and be dumb? Because everybody in this, well, everybody in this. I'm amazed that characters act according to a, a script. Smart, a smart person would have done. Or, and all these people have great jobs, too, implying that they were smart, <laughs> except that they make the dumb. Like the swimmer. Okay, what is the point of M. Night Shyamalan having this guy say, I was a college swimmer. I was on the swim team. When 45 minutes earlier, he asked the question, hey, can anybody swim? Because I think maybe we can swim around that cove. Now, he says nothing about himself being a swimmer at that point in time, and they don't go through with the swim plan. Well, but desperation breeds minutes, unwarranted bravery. 45 minutes later, he's like, yeah, I was a college swimmer, so I'm going to do this now. <laughs> well, maybe he didn't want to give himself up that, you know, I can see that. Like, see that, like, if we're going to poke at the logic of something like that, like, I can see that. Like, somebody who has experience with something, but doesn't necessarily want to put it out there and have the responsibility of that until it's clear that we need to take desperate measures. And then he's willing to make take those desperate measures. So like that... What you're describing could be a realistic reaction. What M. Night Shyamalan put on screen bore no, no resemblance to a human way of behaving, though. That's the problem. There's a way of getting that across, but that is not what he did there. Spoken like an alien. I honestly think that he forgot... <laughs> <laughs> that even happened or something got cut something could have got cut too uh the last thing i'm going to say about this is i think that there is there is an affect to the way people and dialogue are presented in this movie that i think will alienate some people and clearly it alienated patrick really really hard uh and other people will be able to vibe with i personally w was able to locate the vibe which i don't always feel with m night's yeah. movies uh, and I, I think like I think met, uh, a, a lot of pe no one walked out of my screening for the record. Uh, people seemed like pretty riveted. There was no laughter. Uh, the response was pretty strong. Yeah, I, look, I, I I will trash this movie till the day that I die. And I will I would take <laughs> this movie's reels and smash them to pieces like the Ten Commandments if I could. I'd be Moses coming down from the mountain and just angry at everybody. But but I do understand, like, everybody is going to react to every movie differently. And we we have made some choices, you know, where we weren't sure how the rest of us were going to react on this podcast to stuff. Like, we are, obviously, I'm not saying I'm right. That is how I honestly felt, though, watching this movie was just angry at every decision that he made. So, um, yeah, I, I, look, I think the, the, the reviews sort of say it all, too, because they were pretty mixed. Some people really, really did like this movie, and some people felt like I did. Um, and some people were like Rick, where they were sort of in the middle. 
So I just want to say a few more things before we wrap up. So first of all, apparently in the actual graphic novel, there is a character who's omitted from the movie. And apparently that character is, I think, a science fiction writer. And I thought that would have been cool if he kept that character in the film, because it would make sense that this character who writes sci-fi novels would pitch ideas of what he thinks is going on on the island to make everyone age instead of having every other character do it. I thought that would have been really cool. Yeah, I think he read the Lady in the Water reviews and realized maybe he should stay away from that. Uh, yeah, I know, but I thought that would have been really cool because we what happens is in the movie, instead the character was there before on the beach and that's when they find his, uh, his journal, right? So I thought that would have been really cool. And also when watching the movie, like I also was wondering if – we can actually believe everything we see in the sense that are they playing with memories also and are people remembering things correctly? Because what's interesting about this film is it has a lot of similarities to some of his films from the past in terms of like the way it's directed, the shot compositions, nature versus man, like the happening, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing that's different about this film, I think, I'm, I'm trying to think back in all his movies, is that most of his movies focuses on one or two characters and their point of view usually one character for example bruce willis in unbreakable right in this movie you have what nine ten twelve characters and you see it from everyone's vantage point everyone's point of view like everyone like we get to see what they are experiencing in the island and that's why i'm going to go back to end this podcast on mid-sized sedan because we open up with that dude staring into the ocean and i'm just wondering if this whole thing is just him writing a story <laughs> There's got to be some explanation of why this dude's on the beach. Can, can I just say, as as a fake rapper name that a middle-aged screenwriter came up with, Midsize Sedan is not bad. <laughs> it's not the worst he could have come up with. Uh, well, no, you're right. I guess it's, well, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know if it is. It might uh, but be the worst. Did you guys not at one point think that maybe there was going to be a twist and maybe they are not aging and something else is going on on the island that makes them think that they're aging. Well, I honestly thought that the diary was going to have something to do with it. I, I thought that that was, I, I thought that maybe there was a potential that they were inside somebody's story. I, I wasn't, happened. I wasn't expecting the twist that Rufus Sowell was a racist <laughs> that I was not expecting. That was also extremely lazy. Just <laughs> extremely <laughs> lazy. Like, I mean, okay. actually, to be honest, I, I one of the other shortcomings of the movie that I, I do want to mention before I before we go is I think Rufus Sowell is a really good actor. Yeah. Uh, that, but that character was so one dimensional. As Very thankless role for sure. As, as as soon as his uh, mental decline started, to the extent that honestly, if I was like responsible for advocating for mentally uh, uh, for people in mental decline, uh, I might be concerned about this depiction. Um, but uh, I don't How know. You feel I about the like... movie's depiction of tumor removal? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like I, I I I'm not personally that sensitive about it, but I was hoping that Rufus Owell would get a little more to do because he does have he still has quite a lot of screen presence. You know what? This movie had the best trailer and poster of all of his movies. Great marketing. It it did have a good trailer. I see. I did. That's funny because I I was I was going to avoid this movie because I didn't like the trailer. There you go. Um, you, there's no pleasing you, Patrick. No, I that was. It's funny. I did not watch your art films. I didn't want to expect to hate it either. I I always keep an open mind, open mind when it comes to Shyamalan because I never know what the hell he's going to do these days. You might find this shocking. But Patrick does not like this movie. What? <laughs> what? Bless you, M. Night. Keeping the dream uh, alive. 
Better luck still... next time with Patrick. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'll still go see his next movie. Um, all right, <laughs> let's wrap things up here. Uh, Randy, where can we find you online? You are online, unlike Simon and I. Where I'm very you? online. Um, I'm on the internet. You can find me. Uh, I do a show called The Midseason Replacements, where we actually talked about old last week, and I will not be talking about old this week. Um, me and my co-host, Sean Cleddy, have a lot of fun over there. And sometimes we bring in some of these guys for some adventures. So that's where oh, you can find me. And by the way, I'm not on the internet right now. However, I do have a new podcast starting. I'm not going to talk about it yet. We're recording our first episode in nine days. I'll tell you about it later. All right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Rick, where can we? Where can everybody find you and the podcast online? Um, you can find the podcast over at SortedCinema.com, which will redirect you to the main site, Goomba Stomp. You can check the podcast section. You can listen to the podcast everywhere, including iTunes, Amazon, uh, YouTube, Podbean, you name it. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Sorted Cinema. I think Randy's on Twitter, but the rest of you guys aren't on Twitter. Nope. I am. It's RJ Dank. RJ Dank and Sorted Cinema. Follow us, tweet at us, tell us why you love or hate old and hopefully we will be back next week with my pick and not simon's pick because my pick is <laughs> better than simon's picks although you know what's funny is i i chose this movie and simon simon loves it i liked it yeah we'll see what happens next week yeah. i'll let these two guys fight it off fight it fight it out <laughs> All right, we'll, see you. we'll see you then Ka-ka!